God's grace is amazing, church, isn't it? Isn't it amazing, church? You know what? Here, here is the crucial thing. I believe that God does not just want us to know His truth. He wants us to walk in His truth. Do you know the difference? It is. I grew up in a church, and the honest truth was that I knew this, and I knew about Jesus, but I had not truly experienced the promises of God. I had not truly experienced His love. And today, I want to challenge you, God's Word invites you to not just know this and listen to the sermon and obtain the facts, but for you to walk in it, for you to experience victory. This is why God allows circumstances in our life. And we kind of just throw our hands up and say, God, what is this all about? And it's in that moment in which Jesus invites you to experience his word, to experience his love, to experience his truth. This is for all of us. See, that is what brings us to maturity. It's not how well you had the Bible memorized. The Pharisees had the Bible so well committed to memory, but they didn't walk in it. Now, I'm using the term walk in the truth. Jesus used the term abide. You don't know how to abide in the truth. But church, that's not you and me, is it? Is it? No, we are called to abide in it and experience it. So that is my prayer that we be able to experience the truth. And I want to just share with you a moment in my life in which I had the privilege, though at the time I certainly didn't see it that way, I had the privilege of experiencing God's truth. When I was starting the business many years ago, you know, I, I'd leave my family down south with uh, my wife's parents and then I would come up here to Orlando and I would work the business Monday through Thursday, go back for a long weekend and also just in prayer and uh, just really seeking God, impart, seek, praying for him to impart vision for the church. Uh, we were in the process of getting a church plant ready. Now, in this, I remember when I had tested the waters for the uh, market up here in Orlando, and I was given like two thumbs up, and I had so many dealers. I was amazed. Yeah, we'll try you. Yeah, well, come on. Make sure you see me. My name is, give me his card. And so I would go there when it was time was ready. That was all outfitted, ready to jump into it with both feet. And they looked at me like, who are you? I'm the guy that spoke with you like last month, remember? Or two months ago, whatever it was. And uh, I gave him my card and closed door after closed door. And I remember on one occasion, it was at the end of the second week and the last day. And I was like, God, you called me to Orlando. Where are you right now? Is this a joke? God, I am called to support my family. And it's not like I've got... A hundred people supporting me financially. You didn't call me to do it that way. You called me to start this business. You called me just like Paul to be a tent maker. And I need you, God, to prosper this business. I need you to do so. Step into my situation right now because, God, I'm desperate. And I've gone to, there are 60 dealerships, I counted them at that time, in the metro Orlando area getting to, you know, Popka and DeLand and, and all of this. And... I was knocking on every door and one closed door after the, the other. And I was just saying, God, have you abandoned me? And I want to ask you this morning, have you at some point in your life felt abandoned by God? 
Have you at some point faced a tragedy wondering where is God in my circumstance, in my life right now? I'm not talking about Sunday morning when I was feeling his presence. I'm talking about right now because I don't feel anything. All I see is tragedy, despair, bankruptcy, whatever the problem you're facing is, a broken marriage, a relationship that's gone awry, and it just seems like the devil got in, upended it, and you're just saying, God, where are you? And as I poured out my heart to the Lord that day, he drew my attention. I was eating lunch at this picnic table in Maitland, and they've turned it kind of into a park with a fountain in the middle. And I remember eating my lunch at that picnic table and across the street, actually driving down 1792, it's on the other side of the lake you would see, um, is a building, a house, an old house, a very old house, in fact. And they were pulling planks off of it. And I'm kind of wondering, man, they are tearing this thing apart. Are they tearing it down? And the Lord began to speak to me because as I observed the situation more, I realized they weren't demolishing this building. They were being so careful in how they were pulling it apart. They were restoring it. And he said, Mike, there are some dead planks in your life. And I need you to invite me in to remove those. There were ways in which I allowed the enemy into my life. And this one in particular was self-pity. Every single one, if I were to ask for hands of how many of you have ever experienced self-pity, that would be like, well, duh, hello. Everybody in this room has experienced self-pity. So every hand would go up. The only reason why you didn't raise your hand is because you're napping right now or you fell asleep and you didn't hear what I said. Because everyone in this room has experienced this and I am not the only one. I mean, I mean, right? Amen. Yeah, Okay. <laughs> And, and we can feel this way, though. I felt alone. I was like, God, have you abandoned me? This is hard. Because, you know, when you're going to dealership after dealership, anything, and, and that's the sales end of my business that I really did never like. But I, I, there, there's a lot of no's you got to face and a lot of rejection. And I was casting that out on God. And I was, I was just spiraling in this self-pity. God, have you abandoned me? Where are you? And God had to show me there are three ways that I receive love. I can either receive love from God, I can receive love from people, or maybe a little kitten or dog or what have you. Or if I don't get love from any of those or feel like I'm not, I indulge in self-love. And that's what pity is. That's what self-pity is. And it is a distorted part of our makeup that God needs to step into and heal. Now, this is only one area. There are many areas. But it is because I listened to lies. We are talking about a battlefield. You know, I, I almost want to just say a few words, close my Bible, because in every element of our time here this morning, that has been the theme. And I'm not sure I shared with my wife necessarily what I was preaching on. And, and yet, this is the recurring theme. Church, we are in a battle. And this morning, I want us to see a picture of that battle actually in the Old Testament. Monday morning, I felt certain that God had laid on my heart what to preach on. <clears throat> and I spent hours in the word on this topic. And the Lord just spoke to me and said, no, no, that, that's not what I want you to preach on. 
He shared with me the reasons, so I said, okay. So I'm like, okay, Lord, what do you want me to preach on? And he immediately showed me, I, I want you to preach on this. But he didn't tell me he wanted me to preach on that next Sunday. And so here I'm, I'm working on it. And this Friday afternoon, and then with certainty yesterday morning, and I usually spend all week in preparation, you know, hours here and there. And God said, change the sermon. This is what you're preaching on. So I'm trying to be obedient with them. I'm out of, uh, I, I, I'm out of my comfort zone with this, okay? And so I'm going to do my best to preach on it. We are in a battle, and I want you to know that in this battle, we have got to fight with everything in us. Four years ago, I gave this sword to my son, Jim. Several of us men had a sword ceremony, and we purchased swords for our sons. And in this ceremony, we not only gave them a sword, but we told them why. And it was an introduction to manhood. And the idea was, son, a mantle of manhood has been placed upon your life and you are going to find yourself fighting for dear life, but you're going to need to fight it God's way with his truth. Ephesians 6 talks about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's truth. And I want to bring that to you this morning because that is our weapon. The devil comes at us with lies and he, he, he tries to make us feel abandoned and rejected. And we have got to fight him with the sword of truth. Every battle that you encounter that is spiritual in nature is going to involve truth. Truth will always be at stake because truth is what points us to Jesus. Truth about who God is and what Christ has accomplished for us. Truth is what's at stake. And Satan knows this. When Jesus came, excuse me, when the devil came to Jesus in the wilderness, what, how did Jesus fight? Every single temptation, he did so with the word of God with the truth of God. And he wielded the word in such a way that at the very, and I love this, in such a way at the very end of that temptation period of 40 days, it says, and the devil departed from him for a season. How many of you would love right now, today, for the devil to depart from you for a season? And let's make sure it's a long season. Amen. I want to be able to help you be able to use the sword of the spirit in this way because it is in every battle that you will face. The sword of the spirit. I love the sword, actually. It hangs in Jim's room on this plaque like so. And the plaque itself says Defender of Purity. And I challenged Jim and I said, Jim, this is not just for your purity, but for the purity of those around you, and especially the ladies. Interact with them in a way that's pure. And the only way you're going to do that is by knowing the Word of God, the sword of truth, and using it. Amen, church? So that's what I want us to do. I want you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 18. While you're turning there, let me give as brief a review from last week as I can. 
We discovered in John 12, 31 to 32, we discovered this truth. Jesus says, now the ruler or the prince of this world will be cast out. And we had to ask the question, that seems awesome. The devil is cast out, but he doesn't feel like it. So when is this going to happen? And some people say, well, it's going to happen sometime in the future at the very end of the age. I want to let you know this right now. The very next verse, and I mentioned this to you last week, gives, gave us a clue. Jesus said, but I, even I, when I am lifted up, talking about the manner in which he would die, the cross, I will draw all men unto me. Same future tense, same type of promise. This is what I am going to do. And we realized that Jesus will draw all men unto himself, starting at the moment of the cross and his resurrection, carrying on today and until he comes again with the goal of global revival. And there are over two dozen verses in scripture that talk about things such as Christ's rule and reign extending from sea to sea into the ends of the earth. And the, the earth will be filled with the knowledge and the glory of God, even as the waters cover the sea. Many such verses in which Christ's rule will be over all mankind. And I'm not going to get into the end times and the man of lawlessness and how that unfolds. I'm just letting you know this is the end game. We are, the, the world is not going to get worse and worse and God's kingdom diminish more and more. Now, scripture says of the increase of your government, prophetic to Jesus, of the increase of your government, there will be no end. It will always increase. So this is the day in which we live in which the, the rule, the kingdom of God is increasing and growing more and more. And as it grows, the devil's power will become less and less. You see, the devil was defeated at the cross. He is continuing that defeat and being pushed out into the remotest corners of the earth more and more. And eventually, my Bible tells me that it would be cast into the lake of fire, destroyed with all of his, de his, his demons, fallen angels, forever and ever. Daniel chapter 2 says this. It says... Then the iron, this is about the uh, vision that Nebuchadnezzar had. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time. Excuse me, I, I need to back up. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time. The entire image and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Skipping down to verse 44, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. Church, this is the kingdom that I am referring to. The, the Roman Empire is the, the feet of clay and iron, and it was at that point in which this rock hit the statue. Jesus was born during the reign of Caesar, Tiberius Caesar and was crucified, dead, and, and was 
crucified and risen from the dead during the time of the Roman Empire. And in that first century, the kingdom began to explode on the face of this earth during the time of that Roman Empire. And it, it, and it by the cross and by the proclamation of the gospel and the spreading of the kingdom, we are seeing the devil's kingdoms crumble more and more. So at the cross, the devil was defeated. He was bound. The strong man was bound. And over time, he is becoming less and less powerful. It may not seem that way to you, but the kingdom of light is encroaching upon and pushing back the kingdom of darkness. This is a statement, church, of victory. You have the opportunity to partake in this victory. It may not always seem that it's victorious, but I'm going to tell you this. When we walk in faith, and that's going to be the point of the message today, when you walk in faith, you will see God's kingdom come with power and with authority. Jesus said this, Luke eleven nineteen. He said to his disciples, I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy. All the power of the enemy. Church, say that with me. All the power of the enemy. You, my friends, have been given authority over what church? All the power of the enemy. That is, a, that is part of your birthright as a child of God. Remember, we receive power from the Spirit. We receive authority through Jesus Christ. So, I want us to see now an example in 2 Kings 18 about this happening. Now, understand this is Old Covenant. And so the authority of Christ is not there, but the power of God is absolutely there. We're going to see a slight difference, but I want us to observe this and see the heart of God as Hezekiah holds on to truth. In 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 7, it says, And the Lord was with him, referring to Hezekiah, King Hezekiah. He was successful. Hezekiah, th- th- this is about, you know, 730, 725, 720 uh, AD, uh, BC, excuse me. And the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. The king of Assyria is ticked. He rebelled against them. When you became a Christian, you rebelled against the kingdom of darkness and you immediately had a bullseye put on your back. And for some of us, especially those of us who are weak, let me just assure you that your God is more than capable enough to put your enemy to flight. Even though there is a bullseye on your back and the devil wants you back. He wants to neutralize, at, at, at the very least, he wants to neutralize you in the kingdom of God. But church, we have an answer to this. And we're going to discover that today. And so Hezekiah rebelled against the king of Assyria. Let me tell you, the Assyrians were known to be a treacherous, wicked people. They were barbarous in, in how they would attack. They would take rebels, kill them, impale them on long poles and stick those poles in the ground just outside the city they plundered. And they would say, if you even choose to rebel like this man did, this will be your end. And they used intimidation tactics. And we'll see that somewhat here. But Assyria, the the people that they 
captured and conquered hated them. Not as much with later kingdoms. The kingdom of Assyria, though, they hated. And they wanted total freedom. So the king of Assyria, I am sure, is ticked. He comes down to the kingdom of Israel. At this time, there are two kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Judah, and he plunders the capital, which is Samaria. We find that in verse 10. And so Samaria was captured in Hezekiah's time. Skipping down to verse 13, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, which is about 701 BC. Now, the reason why I'm being so exact here is because this is actually also recorded by a Greek historian by the name of Herodotus. Herodotus, not a Jew, hello, he is a Greek, and he records what happened here. Obviously, he records certain different things because Hezekiah and his men who wrote this down are focusing on some things, but we're going to come to a point in which the record is clear, and Herodotus said something absolutely amazing happened. What is that? Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. He did not just stay in the northern kingdom. Now he is encroaching upon the southern kingdom. So Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent this message to to the king of Assyria at Lachish. Lachish is one of the main fortified cities on the road from Egypt to Jerusalem. And that was a significant route that needed to be blocked because as you read through this entire story, and I'm not going to do that, we find that Jerusalem relied upon Egypt for help. And the king of Assyria knows this, so he blocked it off and he captured Lachish. He says, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me and I will pay whatever you demand of me. Remember, this is Hezekiah. The king of Assyria exacted from Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold, which would be about 11 tons of silver and one ton of gold. 2,000 pounds of gold. That is a lot. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that he was that was found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace. At this time, Hezekiah, king of Judah, stripped off the gold with which he had covered the doors and doorposts of the temple of the Lord and gave it to the king of Assyria. Hezekiah, the most godly king since King David, and in some respects even more godly than King David, other respects not so. He pillaged the very temple that he had put time and labor in and putting gold on the doors in repair. And he took that gold as well as so much more gold. You see, the entire temple inside was inlaid with gold everywhere. Carvings in Cypress were panels, and then they beat thin sheets of gold over those. And it was an incredibly ornate interior. Gold everywhere. And he robbed the temple. I'm sure this displeased the heart of God. Because the temple was a shadow of things to come. Christ is the fulfillment. 
And in the old covenant, you had to follow the law very carefully, very clearly. You remember, even with the anointing oil, it was made with such a recipe. You were not to duplicate it and you were not to use it for personal use or you would be put to death. It was that crucial. Hezekiah made a serious mistake here. But what Hezekiah did not do is he did not surrender to the king of Assyria. And this infuriated the king. So he comes further to Jerusalem. He actually sends, it says in verse 17, his supreme commander, his chief officer, and his field commander with a large army. And we find out later that that army is at least 185,000 Assyrian troops. And they are camped on Hezekiah's front lawn along with these three officials. And it is the field commander that comes to the gate. Maybe he's a lower ranking officer. And if he gets killed, no big deal. Because they've got arrows. They're ready to just pierce him through. But he speaks what he came to say. And he says this. This is what the king of, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have strategy and military strength, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you defending that you rebel against me? Verse 22. And if you say to me, we're depending on Yahweh our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed? We learn about that earlier in chapter 18. Saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar at Jerusalem? Notice the lies and half-truths that this field commander is beginning to spout on behalf of the king of Assyria. Now, what I want to do as we go through this, I want you to see the king of Assyria and his ambassador, his field commander. I want you to understand or, or see the king of Assyria as Satan himself. And... He is being used as a pawn in Satan's hand, but he is using Satan's strategies. He is intimidating. Satan will use fear in your life. Where is God in your life today? And he'll start pointing things out to you. And before you know it, you're like, whoa, God, where are you? This is true. So far, until the last verse I read, what he was saying was actually when we read through much of what this field commander says, it's true. Absolutely true. But he leaves out vital truths to the truths he's sharing. He shares a half truth in the last verse. Hezekiah did remove the high places. The people of Judah actually, listen to this, they actually were worshiping Yahweh at these altars. They were worshiping idols, just like Israel did in the wilderness. They didn't create that golden calf and worship Baal or some Egyptian god. They worshiped Yahweh. But God said, you do not do that. Because, listen to this, when you do that, you are actually, you're not worshiping, you're actually worshiping demons. Deuteronomy 32, Moses is very clear on this. You do not take the worship of idols lightly. And so Hezekiah, he understands this. <clears throat> he gets rid of all of the idols and the high places. 
The field commander was speaking a truth in that they were trying to worship Yahweh, but they were worshiping Yahweh in such a way that was contrary to truth and contrary to the nature of God. They weren't worshiping Yahweh. And I'm going to just let you know, church, in our day, people that bear the name of Christian will say they are following Christ and they absolutely are not. Now, I'm not one to stand here and point out those who aren't. That's, that's God's job. Our job is simply to speak the truth and let God sort that out with that person. But we speak truth. And that's the main thing that we need to understand today. But the focus here today is not going to be speaking truth to others. It's going to be speaking truth to ourselves. So here's the field commander, and he's breathing out these threats. He even goes so far as to say in verse uh, 29, do not, do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He's speaking to the people. Verse 30, do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in Yahweh. He even uses the covenantal name of Israel's God, Yahweh. Verse 31, do not listen to Hezekiah. Later on in the next verse, do not listen to Hezekiah. In verse 36, the people remained silent and said nothing in reply because the king had commanded, do not answer him. This is where, as we pull this story into a New Testament grid, we part company with Hezekiah's command. Because you see, we are commanded to answer the devil. When he comes at you with lies and half-truths, we do answer him. We do command him. Let me tell you that this battle against our adversary is so crucial, but it is so hard. You are going to find yourself at moments so paralyzed either with distress or depression or the sense of rejection or abandonment or some intense emotion, you will feel paralyzed. You will feel like you cannot answer. You cannot come against the devil. You, you feel like you are prey ready to be hacked open. And that's what the devil wants to do. He wants to lay you open. And you feel that way, and there's something inside of us that is giving up. What do you do at that moment when every morning you wake up and there's a knot in your stomach and this sense of dread? What do you do when you wake up in the, in the morning and the only thing you can think about doing is sleeping till noon because depression has become a way of life and has gripped your heart? This is where we live, people. This is where many Christians live. And it's hard. And here is one thing I'm going to say to you. When you are facing those times in your life in which you feel paralyzed, you feel like you can do, you have no power. I'm preaching on power and authority and you're just thinking, I guess he's preaching to someone other than me. And you're a born again Christian. I'm going to tell you this. All you have to say, church, is Jesus, help me. Did not Bartimaeus cry that out? Did he not say, Jesus, son of David, help me? He didn't know what else to say. Help me. Have mercy on me. And sometimes that is the only thing that you can get out of your mouth. 
I've had people in my, counsel, in my pastoring years tell me about times in which they have felt as if they were laying on their bed and a heavy hand was pushing them down and they literally could not physically get up. That is more than just a negative emotion that's controlling you. I want to tell you right now, Satan wants you down for the count. I am telling you the way out. I am telling you Hezekiah gives us an example and the very first thing is you need to answer the devil. You don't feel like it and so the only way to do that is to say, Jesus, help me. Let that be the cry of your heart. That is a step of faith, a a mustard seed of faith. That is all Jesus asks. All you need is a mustard seed of faith. And you will say to mountains, be removed into the sea, and it will happen. You will say to the devil, leave my presence now, and he will leave. And I want to tell you, just that word of faith, you feel no power, you feel no authority, you feel overcome, overwhelmed, defeated, laying there on the couch or the bed or on the floor, and all you can say is, Jesus, help me. Three words. Did I count them right? Three words, Jesus help me, exclamation mark. And Jesus will come to your rescue because that is the type of God we serve. So here is what Hezekiah does in chapter 19, verse 1. When, the king Hezekiah, when King Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes. That is a Jewish custom to signify grief, distress. It's not because... They weren't fitting, okay, and he needed more comfort. He tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and went into the temple of the Lord. He went to the temple. The temple that he robbed, that he stole the gold from and the silver from. But the temple that he knew was the only recourse, the presence of God. Now, You, we are told, are the temple of God. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. The temple is where Hezekiah met God. I'm going to tell you this, and Scripture makes it clear. James 4, 7, it says, Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The first step then, and Hezekiah is seeking this, is submitting to God. This is an impossible situation. We are the people of God. This is the very presence of God on earth. And we believe, at least I believe, God, that you are going to come to our rescue. He had just instituted a spiritual reform that, by the way, the field commander highlighted so deceptively to them. Wasn't it Yahweh's altars that you tore down in his high places? What a deception. What a half-truth. And... Hezekiah was walking in the center of God's will. What is this, God? Why are you judging us? Why are, what sin in my life are you, are, you, are you crushing us for? And he could have gone on and on on this guilt trip. No, God, we need you right now. And so he went to the temple and he met with his God. And it says 
in verse 4, it may be that the Lord, he's speaking in message to Isaiah, it may be that the Lord your God will hear all the words of the field commander whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God, and he, he will rebuke him. I want you to highlight that word, that he will rebuke him for the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, pray for the remnant, that is the kingdom of Judah, northern kingdom gone, where the remnant. Therefore, pray for the remnant that still survives. Assyria has been intimidating, hurling insults, half-truths, lies, deceptions at God and his people. He goes to the temple. He appeals to Isaiah, pray for us. And in verse 6, Isaiah said to them, tell your master, this is what the Lord says, do not be afraid of what you have heard. Do not be afraid. I'm going to tell you this right now. The lies that the devil is whispering to you, do not be afraid. The more fear that we feel, the more sense of self-pity and recoiling and distancing ourselves from God, that is sure defeat. We have to step into it. Even when we feel like we don't want to, even when we feel like we don't can't or, or, or we can't, Jesus Save me, help me, rescue me, and God will impart faith to your heart. Submit to God, seek him. But you've got to take that first step, church. You've got to take the sword of the spirit, which faith ignites in your hand. And you've got to step forward and you've got to, just like Jesus, he used the word of God. You need to say, the truth of God's word is this. And the truth of God's word is that. And begin to fight for your life. And so Hezekiah cries out to God and Isaiah says, don't be afraid. Don't be intimidated by this field commander, by the king of Assyria. Watch what I'm going to do. He's going to hear a report and he's going to go off. He's going to leave. What actually happens, at least immediately, does the king of Assyria leave? Yes, but not immediately. What does happen immediately is that the king of Assyria moves on to Libna, another fortified city, just north. So he wants to cut off now, not just the route to the south, to Egypt, but he's now cutting off the east-north route to be able to get any aid from northern kingdoms and he is in the process of surrounding Israel and he is going to attack there's still 185,000 Assyri- plus Assyrian soldiers camped on Hezekiah's front lawn and the king of Assyria sends another message And he says, say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let the God you depend on deceive you. When he says, Jerusalem will not be handed over to the king of Assyria. Surely you have heard the kings of Assyria have done all what the kings of Assyria have done to all the countries, destroying them completely. And will you be delivered? Did the gods of the nations that were destroyed by my forefathers deliver them? The answer is no. And a resounding, though, he actually lists many of them and you think you're an exception to the rule not 
fear, intimidation, lies. In verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord again. And he spread it out before the Lord. Now he doesn't go into the temple. That's for priests. He comes before the temple, into the temple court, and he lays this letter down. We're not sure where exactly, but in the temple. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim. He is standing before the temple that houses the, the mercy seat, the cherubim. That is where God is seated, the very presence of God on earth. And he appeals to the God of heaven. You alone are God. You alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to the words of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. Listen to the words Sennacherib is sent to insult the living God in verse 19. Now, O Lord God, our God, deliver us from his hand so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Isaiah is not with Hezekiah at this time. The Lord speaks to him. The Lord, I am sure, tells him Hezekiah is in the temple. And he's pleading his case before me and tell him to say this about the king of Assyria. Now, I'm not going to read what God is going to do to the king of Assyria, but he says, I'm going to send him back. He is going to run from you. He's going to flee to his homeland and there I will cut him down. Here's what God did. It says there, follow me now, verse 35. That night, God didn't wait a week or a month. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp. It got back to him. He wasn't there at the city. It got back to him in Libna. He broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. The next passage talks about how he went. Now, granted, it was 20 years later. He went to his temple and his very own two sons killed him while he was worshiping his false god. Here's the irony of that that I appreciate. Hezekiah goes to the temple and God brings his deliverance. Sennacherib goes to the temple of his God and he's killed. Now, I'm going to challenge you. When you are facing the enemy, it is serious. Number one, we need to make a choice to stand against the enemy. Hezekiah did not capitulate. He kind of halfway gave in when he gave him the gold and silver that the king of Assyria requested. But he did not join in league with him. He did not support him, but he remained in rebellion against him. And that ticked off the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria threatened more. But we have to take our stand against the enemy. The second thing is that we need to call out to God to help us stand and come to Jesus. Help me. We need to submit to God. 
Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And so Hezekiah goes to the temple and he pours out his case before God and declares truth. Go back there in in chapter 19 when he was in the temple. Look through that. He's declaring truth. This is who God is. And he refused to believe any of the lies of the king of Assyria. And I'm going to tell you, when the devil comes to you and he starts speaking lies to you and he starts saying things like, nobody loves me. There's nothing special about me. I have no friends. No one seems to like me. I am unimportant. I am all alone. Everyone has rejected me. When you start listening to that and feeding on it and it starts taking you down, spiral downward, I am asking at that moment, cry out to Jesus for help. Get into your Bible. Start searching the Word of God. Take the sword of the Spirit in hand and say, God, show me the truth of your Word. Show me, God, the truth of your love. Because the love of God is beyond our understanding. It is so vast and it is so deep. Paul tells the Ephesians, grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and know this love that surpasses knowledge and start declaring that truth and allow faith to rise up in your heart. Maybe the devil knocked you on your butt. Maybe he did something in your life that made you wonder, can I really trust him? Is he really strong enough? Look at the devastation in my life. And God let this happen. How is it I can trust him today? And I'm going to tell you this, that the answer to that question is deep waters. But I know this. I know that God is my protector. And if he lets anything of an evil nature happen to me, it's because he has this incredible plan and I cannot see it. And it's when I fight against him and I resist him that I start cutting off that life. I'm going to choose to agree with God. I'm going to choose to believe the truth. And I'm I'm going to declare the truth. There is something about not just believing truth, but declaring it. And Romans 10 tells us this. Believe in your heart, but confess with your mouth. That's what Hezekiah does. He confesses the truth. Church, confess the truth. Confess it. And watch the devil flee from you. Declare his praises. Thank him for the truth. And then turn to the devil and tell him, Devil, enough is enough. And I want you to imagine holding a sword in your hand. And even if you're a woman, holding a sword in your hand. And saying, Devil, get out of my life. You have no place here. You have no place in my family. Parents, stand in the gap for your kids when you see them, when you see the devil encroaching on your family for your kids. Devil, get out of my life. Get out of my family. You have no place here. God is the one who sits as supreme chief and king in my home. You have no place here. Get in his face. I'm telling you, rebuke the devil and he will flee. This is truth. This is a battle. And I'm going to just let you know that in the very beginning, you may not feel like doing anything except capitulating and giving up. 
cry out to him. And God will cause faith to rise up. And when it does, stand your ground. When faith arises, speak the truth. Command the devil. This is the authority that you have. That you have. When Jesus rebuked demons, he did not say, uh, uh, excuse me, but... Um, I really don't appreciate what you're doing to this man. And so I'm going to ask you, granted very nicely, but if you wouldn't mind, no. He gets in his face and he rebukes the evil spirit and he commands them when Jesus healed. I'm not going to say he didn't pray, but I do know this. He commanded the healing. He said, be clean. He said, be healed. When Peter went up into Tabitha or Dorcas's room, she had died. She was a godly widow in the church. She died. They laid her on her bed in her bedroom and they asked Peter to come and he came and he closed the door behind him and he knelt down in prayer. And then when he was done seeking God, he stood up and he did not say, Tabitha, I'm sorry, but would you mind getting up please right now? He said, Tabitha, in the name of Jesus, arise. And he commanded. Why? Because authority from Jesus Christ was given to Peter. And it is that same authority that has been given to you by the cross if you're in Christ. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I'm going to challenge you. If you're in a tough situation, take your stand. Remember, if you don't feel like doing that, you're overwhelmed and negative emotions can do that. At least say, Jesus, help me. And he will infuse faith into your heart. And then take your stand against the devil, seeking God, resisting the devil. And this is God's promise. He will flee. And when Hezekiah took his stand, God said, enough is enough. I'm cutting off the enemy. He encroached upon my territory and I let him have it, Israel that is, because I needed to bring some discipline there. But you've come too far. And my godly king that I have set in place has sought my face and God stepped in. 185,000 Assyrians died. Herodotus tells us this. Except Herodotus, the Greek historian, believed it was a bubonic plague. Try saying that 10 times fast. But it happened overnight. Overnight. 185,000. Not over a week or over a month or two months or a year in one night. God stepped in. Just like in the plagues of Egypt, God stepped in and said enough is enough. You have gone too far. Can I ask you, has the devil gone too far in your life? Has he stepped in too far? Has he encroached upon God's property? Because he did buy you, by the way. You are his if you're in Christ. You belong to him. If Satan is treading on God's property, I'm going to encourage you, take your stand and tell him he cannot speak truth. Speak truth. I am loved by God. I am even loved by God's people. I am not abandoned. I am not rejected. I made mistakes in my life, but God has not left me and my friends have not left me. Some 
but not all. Even some of Paul's friends, by the way, left him, but not all. I am not rejected. I am loved, and I am not alone. Even the worst evil that could possibly happen on the face of this earth, God permitted. He permitted it. It's called the cross. He allowed it. He will even allow, at times, the enemy to encroach on his property to a limit. And at times, even allow much evil. The disciples, on the night that Jesus was crucified, locked themselves into an upper room, filled with fear, completely hopeless and despondent. Is that not how we have felt many times? And yet, church, the greatest good ever came out of the cross. The worst sin ever to occur on planet Earth. God caused the greatest good. Can he not do something as simple as your situation in comparison to the cross to bring him glory and bring you victory? Can he not do that? So church, I'm going to encourage you, stand your ground. Let God arise. Let his enemies be scattered. Let God step in. And I'm going to encourage you when he leaves, keep pursuing Jesus and do not give up. Can you stand with me? We're about to take communion right now. What an amazing time to remember the power of the cross. Because it was after the cross became the greatest good ever, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray right now for your resurrection time. I'm going to pray that God will step into your situation and where the enemy is beating you down, that God's resurrection power will come to your aid and will rescue you. And I just want to say this, if you have never truly put your faith in Jesus Christ and surrendered your heart to Him... Let him do that today and invite him to step into your life, wash away your sins, give you new life, and allow you now on this amazing journey with him throughout the rest of eternity. Let's pray. God, you are amazing. Your goodness knows no end. Father, we are in kingdom conflict today. The enemy has risen. He has attacked. And Father, for some of us, he feels like he has won. Just to share how we feel. It feels like he has won. Today, God, we are standing right now and we are declaring, devil, You have not won. I do not belong to you. Truth. I belong to him who created me for his purposes and not you. I belong to God. I refuse to believe any of your lies. And I embrace every truth, every promise for life and godliness for my life.
Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Jesus, come into our situation. As hard as it feels right now. And lift this heavy load. There are times, God, when we look at our life and we see two sets of footprints and you have walked so closely with us and we have enjoyed those moments. And yet, Father, during the most difficult times in our life, we notice but one set of footprints. And Father, if we're not careful, we could get discouraged and ask God, why is it that then you abandoned me? But only to hear the words of truth, son, daughter, it was during those times that I carried you. Father, some of us right now, we need to be carried. And I'm asking you, Lord, speak words of truth, words of hope, words of love, words of faith and certainty to our hearts today. And may we see the enemy flee because God has risen me up and I have taken my stand against the enemy. And today, God, I do that. I declare the truth. My God is victorious. I stand in the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. These are not just words. This is reality. And I am engaged in this battle. And devil, I am telling you now, leave now. Leave my presence and let God arise and let all of his enemies be scattered before me. In Jesus' name. And I am asking God, please, for every single one of us, would you do that, God? Would you come to our rescue? Some of us, God, we are feeling so weak. We can't even stand. Church, just cry out to Him wherever you are. In your hearts or out loud, cry out to Him. He will come now to your rescue. He will fill your heart with faith. This is who He is. God, I ask, please, be true to your promises. And as people begin to cry out, God, come to their rescue and deliver them from the evil one. Put to death those Assyrians camped outside our house. And may the enemy flee. Show yourself, mighty God. Flex your arm. Raise the sword. Destroy all the works of the devil. That's why you came in Jesus' name.